Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon is brought to you by Bible teacher Michael McDowell and was recorded on Sunday, April 30th, 2023. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi in person. You could also follow us on Instagram at, at FaithBridge to see what goes on during the week. And as always, you can join us every Sunday for our online service called FaithBridge Live at faithbridge.org live. Here's Michael. Well, FaithBridge, it is good to be with you this morning. Uh, like Pastor Ken said, my name is Michael McDowell, and whether you're here live in Center Court West or you're coming to us from the communion room or you're at home and you're watching online, we are really glad to he- have you with us today. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, so if you need a Bible, raise your hand. There will be ushers coming down the rows. They'd be happy to give you one, and if you'd like to keep it, please do. That's our gift to you this morning. Uh, I was a horrible kindergartner, and not maybe for the reasons that you think. I I didn't misbehave, okay? I I knew better than that. I behaved really, really well. And and not in the cute way that you sometimes see in kindergartners where it's like, oh my goodness, the love of God is in you, and you're the future, and I'm so glad that you're alive. No, I behaved because I realized early on that by behaving well, I could get what I wanted, And when I was in kindergarten, what I wanted more than anything was control. I wanted to not be in kindergarten, right? I wanted to be in charge of my class. I didn't want to be one of peers. I wanted to be the teacher. And so I guess I thought that I could behave well. I could show my maturity. And then, I don't know, maybe Miss Wimberly would make me the teacher. I hadn't thought that far ahead. But I bided my time and I waited for the moment where I could make my move. And then one day I felt like it came along. There were two kids in my class. Uh, One's name was AJ and the other Brent. And they were kindergarten boys, which is to say they just did things without thinking. So on the same day, AJ knocked over a jar of marbles just to see what would happen. On the same day, Brent walked into our little monarch butterfly garden that we had and plucked a chrysalis off a leaf. Again, just to see what would happen. And so I had seen Miss Wimberly discipline both Brent and AJ, and I felt like, okay, now's my time to show how mature I am. Now's my time to show her that I could be the teacher. So I moseyed over to where she was during playtime. She was sitting on a bench. I was like three feet tall, so I had to climb onto the bench. And I sat down, and I looked at her. And she looked at me. I was like, ugh, like she didn't see me climb up. And I looked at her, and I said, so, Miss Wimberly, what are we going to do about AJ and Brent? <laughs> she like looked at me and she pushed me off the bench and she said, you're five, go play. And I moped for the rest of the day because she did remind me something that was true. I was five, I should be playing and not plotting the takeover of my kindergarten class. Now, maybe you're a better kindergartner than I was. Maybe you were behaved out of a sense of I should just be a good person. Um, But what was happening in my heart as a kindergartner, the Bible says is true of you and me, which is we like to be in control. We don't like to submit ourselves to other authorities, be it teachers or bosses or, in the ultimate sense, God. But we like to seize control of our fates. We like to be our own man, our own woman. We like to have control of our destiny. And when God's not given that to us, we'll do whatever we can to either seize that power from him, to get him onto our agenda, 
or we'll make a God in our own image who won't object to our agenda. This is the story of the entire Old Testament. It starts back in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because they want to be like God. Right? It continues on in Genesis 6 where you see people build a tower of Babel so that they can go up to heaven and seize God's control themselves. And then it continues in the wilderness when the Israelites make a golden calf, a God that they can interact with on their own terms. And on and on and on. The story of the Old Testament is the story of a people that don't like to submit to God, that want to take control from him and want to make gods in in their own image that won't object to what they're doing. So when Luke sits down to write his gospel and to write the book of Acts, which which we've been studying for the last few months, He is aware of this tendency in the human heart. And he wants to make it abundantly clear that the the salvation that we've attained through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the growth of the church that we've seen in the book of Acts, it's all due to God. It's all God's work. All the glory belongs to him. So when we see the Holy Spirit falling in Acts chapter 2, he wants us to look at God and say, we serve an amazing God, and he's doing it all, and all the glory belongs to him. When we move along through the chapters in Acts, and we see little girls being raised from the dead, and demons being cast out of people, and people being healed, he wants us to look at God and say, we serve an amazing God. All the glory belongs to him. When we see Stephen giving his life for the church, church. Luke wants us to look at God and say all the glory belongs to God. He's the one who's doing it all. But then every once in a while, Luke will press pause. He'll call a timeout. He'll say, okay, okay. I'm glad we're excited about this. I'm, I'm glad we're, we're looking at God and we're saying that this all belongs to God. To him belongs all the, all, all the glory, you know. But what about when things are a little trickier? In those moments, do you give all the glory to God? In those moments, do you believe that God is a good king? An example of one of these timeout passages is Acts chapter 4 with Ananias and Sapphira, when God calls them to give up everything to follow him, and they're unwilling to do so, and it gets them into trouble. It's as though Luke is asking us, when God's asking us to give up everything, are we still willing to give him all the glory and believe that he is a good king? And then in the passage today, Luke's going to ask us, Another question. What do we do when God's not following our agenda? What do we do when he's not on our schedule? What do we do when God's not doing what we want him to do? In other words, in those moments, are we going to treat God as a means or are we going to treat God as an end? Luke wants to know whether we're going to try to seize control of the steering wheel from God and use them as a means to get to our agenda, to get to what we really want, or is God the ends that we really want in the first place? That's what Luke's asking today. And he's asking this because he knows that there are going to be time in our, times in our lives when God isn't doing what we want him to do, when he's not answering our prayers like we think he should be, when he's not giving us what we want and when he's not giving us what we think we need. Right? Maybe you're looking in the rearview mirror of another broken relationship, and you've been praying for years that God would bring you a spouse, and it hasn't happened yet. Luke wants to know, what do you believe about God in those moments? How do you think of him? Or it's the end of the month, and maybe you're looking at another pile of bills that you're not sure you can pay, 
and you've prayed for God for years for a raise and it hasn't come along yet, what do you believe about God in those moments? What do you think about him? What do you do with him? Or maybe it's even trickier, right? Maybe you've heard those words from the doctor, it's cancer. What do you do about God in those moments? What do you believe about him? What do you think about him? In those times in our lives when God's not on our agenda, when he's not on our schedule, when he's not doing what we want him to do, do we try to take control and use him as a means? Or do we remember that he is the ends to which we move in the first place? Luke's going to ask us this question today by telling a, a kind of strange story about a strange guy named Simon the Magician. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9, and we'll learn a little bit about Simon and how he thought about God. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and explained, this man is rightly called the power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now, because Simon Peter is going to show up later, I'm just going to call Simon Peter, Peter, and Simon the magician, Simon. Right? Peter... We love Peter, leader of the apostles, two thumbs up, smiley face, five stars. Uh, Simon the magician, ah, two thumbs down, frowny face, one star. Luke doesn't like Simon. Uh, and Luke doesn't seem to like Simon for a few reasons. Simon's kind of everything that Luke suspicious of tied up into one person. Uh, he is a Samaritan. And if you remember from our study on Luke, Samaritans are basically heretics. They believe wrong things about God and they insist that they're right and they're unwilling to change their mind and worship God rightly. So he's a heretic, strike one. Strike two, he's a magician and not the cool kind, right? Not David Blaine. He's not pulling out a deck of cards and pulling out an ace of spades and saying, is this your card? No, he's doing black magic. He's tapping into some dark stuff to manipulate people and get what he wants. So strike two, black magic magician. And then strike three, he's proud. He's in fact so proud that he's calling himself the great power of God, right? He's, claim, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be divine in some sense. That's how proud he is. So strike one, heretic. Strike two, black magic. Strike three, proud. So if you're watching Simon and you're an early Christian in the early Christian community, you're backing up, you're rubbing your hands together, you're putting on your sunglasses because you're expecting God to come down in a pillar of fire and strike him down. If anyone deserves it, it's Simon. It's hard to imagine a more toxic and noxious person for the early church. And yet, that's not what happens. Instead, Philip comes along and he preaches the gospel. He talks about Jesus. There's no, we don't have a director's cut of Acts where Philip gives a long, eloquent speech and Simon gets down on one knee and gives his magic wand up. No, Philip just comes along and he preaches the gospel. And the Samaritans believe, and so does Simon. Happily ever after, right? Normal story in Acts would end this way. 
Acts loves to talk about an unexpected God doing an unexpected thing and an unexpected people of the power of the gospel to go out and save those that we wouldn't expect to be saved. So if this were a normal story in Acts, this is where it would end. But of course, this isn't where it ends. And if you've been following along with us in Acts, you know that there are a few Things that people do when they attain salvation that we don't see Simon doing here, right? When people realize that they have an eternal fate secured by Jesus Christ, that God became man to save us, that he died for us, that he rose again on our behalf, the proper response is worship and praise and gratitude. So when people are saved in Acts, that's what you see. You see people worshiping and giving God praise and gratitude and again looking at God and saying, you are a great God, you've done great things and this all belongs to you, but we don't see Simon doing that. Instead, we see Simon following Philip and studying his signs. And We could be forgiven for wondering whether Simon is watching Philip and studying his signs so that he can learn to do them himself to get back his platform. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So, Peter and John, the leader of the apostles, they come off the bench in Jerusalem. They go to Samaria. They start praying for people, laying their hands on them. People are receiving the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. And it's not happening to Simon. And Simon really wants it. Simon wants the Holy Spirit. He wants the power of God, and God's not doing what he wants him to do. And so here's the crux. Here's where Luke poses to us the question. What do we do when God's not doing what we want him to do? What do we do when God's not on our agenda? What do we do when he's not following our schedule? Do we try to use him, bringing him down from his throne, using him as a means to what we really want? Or do we remember that he is the ends to which we move, our great king, the ultimate thing that, that we should all really want? Simon chooses the former. He chooses to take God off the throne and use him as a means to an end. He, he pulls out his credit card, right? And he walks over to Peter and he says, hey, you know, swipe my credit card, give me the Holy Spirit, and I'll even pay you a little bit more if you let me give the Spirit to other people. And as we'll see, Peter is so shocked that he kind of sputters, like he doesn't even know where to begin. There's so many things wrong with that question that Peter doesn't even know where to dive in. It would be like if you or I went to the post office, and we got to the front of the line, and we pulled out our wallet, and we pulled out a $20 bill, and we asked the person at the desk how they're doing. And they said, great. And we said, and you said, great. And the person at the desk says, how can I help you? And you say, I'd like to buy an atomic bomb. Well, that's not going to happen. And there are a lot of reasons why that's not going to happen. It's hard to figure out exactly where to start in describing why that's not going to happen. But the number one reason is 
You can't buy an atomic bomb. It doesn't matter if you had more than $20. You're not buying an atomic bomb. And Simon's not buying the power of God. And yet by, by trying to pay for the Holy Spirit, that's exactly what he's doing. He's trying to bring God down and use him as a means to his own end. And now, here's the thing. Luke's not telling us this story so that we can point at Simon and laugh. He, he doesn't want us to see Simon as, as someone else. But instead, Luke is telling this story because he thinks that this tendency to, to take God off the throne of our hearts, to use him as a means to an end, he thinks that that exists in your heart and mind. And maybe you're thinking, well, come on. I'm not writing checks to try to buy the Holy Spirit. And, and great, I'm, I'm really glad. If you are, you should stop because that's bad. But... I think that tendency to be like Simon exists in our hearts. I think many of us are more like Simon than we care to believe. Right, we're heading into the summer, which means that if you're a high school senior, congratulations, you made it past the SATs and the ACTs, right? Praise the Lord. And if you're a high school junior, you're starting to look towards that, those SATs and ACTs. And what was interesting for me as I was thinking about the SATs and ACTs when I was a high school junior is that it's a whole family affair. If your mom or dad, you have sacrificed your time and your money and your sleep in order to provide your kid the best that they possibly can have. You've done everything you can so that they'll be successful in life, so that they'll grow up and be even more successful than you were. Right? You want them to succeed. And it feels like in the moment that it all comes down to this one little exam. And if you're the student, you're feeling that pressure from your parents, you're feeling that pressure from your teachers, you're feeling that pressure from your friends, and you want to succeed too, but it feels like the future is crashing in on the present and you're not quite sure how to handle it. In the week leading up to that exam, to that test, what do you do? How do you think about God? What do you talk to him about? I'll tell you what I did. I did exactly what I did in kindergarten. And I tried to be good so that God would be good to me. Right? I, I did the dishes every night. I walked the dog every night. I was nice to my little brothers, believe it or not. I read the Bible a little bit more. I put a few dollars in the offering plate at church. Like, I wanted to succeed, and I thought that by doing good things, I could put my good deeds into a karma machine, and God would spit out a good result for me. And yet by doing that, I showed that I'm no better than Simon the Magician. That just like Simon the Magician, I'm trying to force God onto my agenda. That I'm trying to force him to be a means to my end, and that I think that I can buy him with good deeds. And so maybe for you, it's not the SATs or the ACTs. Maybe for you, it's a court date or a first date or a doctor's appointment or a baseball game or football game. But if in the lead up to those important events in your life, you're doing good things and you're trying to be well-behaved so that God comes in and does something good for you, you're no better than Simon. You're still just trying to buy God. You're still trying to use him as a means to an end rather than the end himself to which we move. And in so doing, we show that we fundamentally misunderstand God and fundamentally misunderstand the gospel. And now, 
here's the other problem with using God as a means. When we take God off the throne and decide that he is going to be the way that we get somewhere else, we leave a vacuum around that throne. And our hearts are heat-seeking missiles to fill that throne. Our hearts search for purpose and meaning like it's, like it's everything for us. We all have things in our lives that we're, moved to, that we're moving towards, that are driving us, that are guiding us, that are informing our decisions. And if it's not God, it's going to be something else. And for Simon, that something else was power. Right before the Christians came along, he had this platform. He was you know, doing miracles. People looked up at him and were amazed. And they said, you're amazing and we want you to lead us and you should run for mayor. And he had power and influence and people were looking at him and he had attention. And then those upstart Christians came along and they took that platform from him. And so now he's doing whatever he can to get it back. And it's getting him in trouble, right? Power, the desire for influence is guiding everything that Simon's doing. And just like Simon, if if we take God off the throne, there's going to be something else there that guides what we do, that informs our decision-making, that leads us forward, right? This is what my friend Joe realized as he was going through the gospel of John with, with a guy named Carter who didn't believe in Jesus. And as they got about five chapters or so into the Gospel of John, they had been studying it for a few weeks, Carter totally ghosted Joe, just stopped responding to his texts, stopped answering his calls, stopped showing up at Bible study. Joe had no idea where Carter went. He didn't know if he was okay. He didn't know if he had moved. He didn't know if he had blocked his number, had no idea what was going on. But then a few weeks later, Joe walked into a coffee shop and saw Carter And Carter tried to hide behind a mug like a cartoon, and that doesn't work. Joe saw Carter, and Joe walked over to Carter, and he said, Hey, man, where have you been? Why haven't you been answering my calls? Why haven't you been answering my texts? What have you been up to? Why'd you stop coming to Bible study? And when when Joe was telling me this story, he said that when he went up to Carter, Carter's shoulders slumped. And he said, Man, As we were going through the gospel, I realized that Jesus wanted to be my number one priority. And that if if I believed in him, some things would have to change. But here's the thing. I want a boat. Like, Joe's like, excuse me? And he said, no, yeah. I want a big boat, like a yacht. And everything that I'm doing in my life is moving towards that goal of buying a yacht. Every career decision I'm making, every relationship I'm taking up or ending, every friendship that I'm choosing, it's all towards the end of me buying a yacht one day. And if I follow Jesus, I'm afraid that my priorities might have to change. What is Carter saying? He's saying that he has an end enthroned in his heart. He has a king that's informing every one of his decisions, but it's It's a king, it's a God made in his own image. And so maybe for you, it's it's not power, maybe it's not stuff like a yacht, maybe it's sex or your children or success or wealth, but if we've put something else on the throne other than God, it's going to inform the way we move, it's going to inform our decisions, and, and maybe it's okay when things are good, but the problem with those things is that they can't provide meaning and purpose when things are bad. Right, let me ask you, Can a yacht give you advice when your marriage is on the rocks? 
No, right? Can a, can a yacht give you medical advice or tell you what to do or provide you with comfort when you get a bad diagnosis? No. Can a yacht help you when you lose your job? No. And so when we enthrone things other than God on this throne, we're, we're walking along with a glass cane. And you know, maybe, maybe the glass cane can support our weight. It can hold up when we're on soft carpet, when things are going relatively well. But as soon as we step outside onto the hard concrete, that cane is going to shatter and we're going to be without any support. That's what happens when we enthrone something else and we try to move towards it. It's going to fail us. On Christ the solid rock we stand, but all other ground is sinking sand. And so where does that leave us? Does Luke think that, that we're cursed to a perpetual cycle of taking God off the throne, of making him a means to an end and putting something else as the end in our lives? Does he think that there's no way out? Does he think we're stuck? Well, no. Luke thinks that there's something that we can do, that there are a few things that we can do to move forward as we try to keep Jesus as the ends to which we move and not just a means to our end. And this comes through Peter's rebuke to Simon after Simon offers him his credit card. Picking up in verse 20, Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying that there are three things that Simon can do to move forward and put God back on the throne and use him as an end and not as a means. To move towards him as the end in which we live and move and have our being and not a means that we just try to use to get on our agenda. And those three things are gathering with other Christians, praying, and reminding ourselves of the gospel. Right, as Peter rebukes Simon, he's actually showing the need to gather with other Christians. Because if, if Peter weren't there, if there wasn't a Christian right there next to Simon, Simon would have had no idea that what he did was wrong. No, Simon needed Peter to come along and say, hey, you're messing up. You're taking God off his throne. You're using him as a means to an end, and you've put something else there as the end to which you're moving. Cut it out. And in the same way, we need that. You know, self-knowledge, it's, it's hard to come by. We are unknown to ourselves. It's hard to see our weaknesses. It's hard to see where we're messing up. But it's pretty easy to see that in other people. And that can be bad, right? We don't want to go down the route of just nitpicking at people. But when we gather with other Christians, when we gather with other believers who are on our team, that can be a real blessing, to have other Christians that can see into our lives and say, hey, I see that you're taking God off the throne and you're using him as a means to get this end. I think you need to maybe move back in the other direction. Or on the converse, to have people in our lives that say, hey, I know things are hard right now and I know that God's not doing what you want him to do, but you're doing a great job keeping God on the throne and following him and not pulling him down to be a means to your end. And then maybe we even sit with other Christians who say, hey, I've been doing this longer than you have. I've been on this earth a little longer than you have. 
And there have been times in my life where I've tried to take God off the throne and it led me to a bad place and I had to learn to put God back and here's how I did it. When we gather with the church, when we gather with other Christians, other believers in grow groups or discipleship groups, what we're doing is is sitting down with other people who are trying to figure out what it means to live on earth in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when we do that, we do that with people who are on our team that can point us in the right direction that are walking with us, that are in the same boat as us, and that can show us the direction where we should go. So we gather with other believers. And then second, we pray. And Luke thinks that prayer is important because he thinks it's new in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He thinks that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, prayer is something new and important, and that just by praying, we are acknowledging that God is on the throne. That just by praying... Just by putting our request to him, just by uttering a a still small prayer when we're in a business meeting right uh, right before we're trying to make a deal, we are showing that God is on the throne and that we are not. But for Luke, prayer is also a way for us to remember the gospel. That when we pray, we remember in the words of the author of Hebrews that we can approach the throne of grace boldly. That the only reason that we can approach God, who who is this king who is incomprehensibly higher than us, the only reason that we can go before him and give him our sins and give him our requests and ask him to move on to our agenda is because he came down from his throne to save us in the first place and to make it possible for us to do that. Before Jesus, there was this gap between us and God. But God didn't see fit to stay in heaven without us, so he came down and he filled the gap. And like the story of the prodigal son, he ran towards us and he threw his arms around us and he kissed us. And that filling in the gap, that celebration, that embrace, it is irrevocable. God is not taking it back. When Jesus went to the cross, he cried to Telestai, it is finished. And by doing so, he was saying that it is done for you, that he has said yes to you, and he is not taking that yes back. So we don't have to try to manipulate Jesus to get him on our side. He's already on our side in a deeper and more profound way than you and I can ever imagine. This is, amen. This is what I was trying to make clear to my friend Fatid. Fatid is a Muslim, and he likes to talk to me and try to establish common ground between his faith and and Christianity. And I keep saying, no, Fatid, no, I don't think that common ground is there. And he gets frustrated, and he'll say, okay, well, how about this? You and I each believe that life is a test, and that if we do a certain amount of things right, we get into heaven, and if we do a certain amount of things wrong, we go to hell. You believe that, right? I said, no. No, fatigue. I don't believe that. I believe that there is a test. But I believe that it's pass-fail. This is Romans 3.23. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that even if I think that I've made an 80 or a 90 or, man, even a 95, it, it's untrue. I have failed. And so have you. And there's only one man who has passed. And that one man looked at my test, looked at my failure, and he exchanged our tests. And he took both up to the teacher and he turned them in. 
that turning in, that salvation, that exchange, it's irrevocable. It's happened already, and it's not coming back. So man, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you no longer have to try to pull him down to be the means of your life because he already is the means and he already is the end. He is the one to which we move and he is the one that is moving us in the first place and in a profound and mysterious way, in a way that's eternal and higher than we can imagine. He is for us, he is for our agenda and he is moving us towards himself even if we can't see it in the moment. This is the gospel. He is with us, he is guiding us and he will lead us home and he will not let us go. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so incredibly grateful for this reminder. We're grateful for the gospel that that you've come and you've saved us and that you are working for us even when we don't see it and know it, that you are working all things together for the good of those that love you, that we don't have to try to make you a means to an end anymore. We don't have to try to manipulate you. We don't have to try to make you love us because you already do and that's not gonna change. I pray that you will speak the gospel to our hearts this week, that as we go forward, as we work, as we play, as we spend time with family, as we spend time with friends, that the gospel would be an ever-burning fire in our hearts that leads us to share your love with others. I pray that you will see us home, Jesus, that you will be real to us, that you will love us, and that you will go with us. And we're grateful for the fact that we know that you will do that that we know that you will see us to the end. Jesus, be our king. Be the end to which we move. Help us to remember that. Amen.